It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. I hope you are having a very good holiday season. My guest today is Kay Alato McDowell, who is a writer, speaker, and musician. They are the author with GPT-3 of the books Pharmaco AI and Amore Cringe, and are co-editor of the Atlas of Anomalous AI. They record and release music under the name Kenrick with a Q. Kay established the Artists and Machine Intelligence Program at Google AI. They are a conference speaker, educator, and consultant to think tanks and institutions seeking to align their work with deeper traditions of human understanding. So I have known Kay uh, since 2015 when they approached me at an esoteric event in which I was presenting on John D and offered uh, the opportunity to get involved in Google's artist and machine intelligence program. So, which is a program that kind of brings in artists and writers and creatives to think about the future of artificial intelligence and concerns around it and that type of thing. So yes, that was a very stressful few months of my life as I contemplated the uh, the, the, the agony and ecstasy and the, the unbelievable potential good of AI, as well as the unbelievable, unbelievably terrifying potential futures of AI. That was a, that was a high strung few months. We had some great conversations during that time. And, and I, I got that time to really, really sit and think for some time about ethics and AI and, quite simply how to ensure that artificial intelligence is ethical and does have humanity's best interests in mind. And my answer to that was you need to program it with Buddhist ethics rather than Western ethics. It is fundamentally about optimizing a system for the greatest good of all sentient and insentient beings and is concerned with the connections between nodes rather than the nodes itself. That's a concept that I've talked about a lot. I've talked about a lot on this podcast. I've talked a lot about it on Duncan Trussell's podcast. I even talked about it in the Midnight Gospel episode that I was in, Duncan's show. But the real primacy of that model became important, not necessarily as a religious concern, but as something that could be programmed into AI at the outset before it begins to modify its own programming so that when AI, you know, in theoretical strong AI takes off, that it begins to, you know, th- to, to simplify this, if we have a strong AI, which likely will happen, it's not totally sure, but it will likely happen at some point in the future, strong AI meaning true artificial intel- intelligence, computer programming that can actually think for itself, which we don't currently have to our knowledge, it will to all intents and purposes be a god. So you had very you, know, you you had better teach it to be a god properly because you don't want a war god. You don't want a god of vengeance. You don't want Jehovah from the Old Testament. And my argument to Google was essentially what you want is a Valakiteshvara. You want a Bodhisattva. You want an intelligence whose fundamental programming is to optimize compassion and loving kindness for all sentient and insentient beings all the way down to that that could be put into computer code. That's a very short summation of, of what I presented to Google AMI and you can find 
actually the the co uh, uh, Kay and I co presented this in London at the Serpentine Gallery. You can find that on YouTube. Actually, I would just search Jason Louvre Serpentine or Jason Louvre Artificial Intelligence, and you can find that there. That is, I would say, of all the stuff that I've done, probably the most important. Uh, it's a shame that it didn't get more attention, uh, but. It's there for the whole world, uh, uh, so the flag post has been put in the ground, and people can't say that it was never there. So check that out, look that up, and we revisit a lot of that territory five years on in this podcast. Kay has been using artificial intelligence to write really cool fiction with occult themes, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. So enjoy the podcast. We cover some deep territory here, and I think it's an important one. P.S. Mickey Pellerano's new course is coming up very fast. Mickey Pellerano is, in my opinion, one of the best astrologers in the world. I'm biased because I've known him for over 20 years now at this point, I think. Um, but his course is happening in early January at magic.me. It's called the astrology of wealth. And he's going to walk you through how to use astrology to optimize how to use planetary astrology and even planetary magic. I've been talking to him a little bit about the course as he's finishing it up planetary astrology and planetary magic to optimize business and finance success. He has a quote that he often uses, which is millionaires don't use astrology. Billionaires do. That is not from an occult writer. That is from JP Morgan, who founded Chase Bank. So there you have it. That's about as good of a, a testimonial as you can get on the subject. Mickey's going to teach it to you. In Mickey's words, here's what Mickey had to say about his course. Astrology is the open secret of the most powerful people in the world. Every great dynasty of history used the power of astrology in their strategies and operations. Every wise ruler has sought its counsel in matters of business, warfare, marriage, and law. Alexander planned every move of his military career under the guidance of astrologers. The nobility of the Renaissance, from the Borgias to the Medicis, let astrology guide their greatest triumphs. The true secrets of astrology have long been guarded by the world's elite. Until now. In this online course, renowned astrologer Mickey Pellerano opens the gates to the true mysteries of the stars. You'll learn the techniques of astrology and planetary magic that the greatest rulers of history have used. Techniques to enrich your life, your business, and your spiritual practice. Techniques that you can put to work for you right now. You need no prior astrological knowledge or training, only the will to learn and to succeed. That success begins now. That course starts January 5th, and of course you will have infinite access to it if you purchase the course. But at the inner circle level of the course, you're going to get two live sessions with Mickey to ask him questions one-on-one. -on -one. That is going to be a really, really interesting course. It marks a new direction for magic.me. Mickey is finishing it up as I am recording this. It's going to be, it's really going to be phenomenal. And I do not exaggerate when I say that Mickey, in addition to being my friend, truly is one of the best astrologers working right now. You've probably heard my podcast with him previously on this show. You can go back and listen if you want a taste of that. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast have actually gotten readings from him in the past. So you probably know who he is. If not, go check out those episodes, but definitely go to magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, 
and check out the page for the upcoming course, The Astrology of Wealth. It is right at the top of the page. I will see you in class. And I say that this time because I will be a student in class. I will not be teaching it. That's super exciting for me. So I will be right there in class with you taking notes because I'm really excited about learning something totally new. All right. I will see you there. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast. Did you do you own a house? I do. So that is really de- depressing then that you have mold. <laughs> yeah, it's like very expensive to fix. Oh, Jesus, it's also biochemically very depressing. Do you, was it was it messing with your? Um, were you tripping on mold? <laughs> I was on a three year mold bender. Oh no, you didn't. Oh, I didn't even oh, know it. Oh no. It, it's. Yeah. I really noticed it in the last couple of months. I think it got like kind of out of hand and like my partner, she noticed it probably over the last year more than, than any, at any point. So, but it was definitely there cause there was a f- flood. There was a, a hose that passed eight through and then there was a flood and that happened in 2019. And then it just kind of grew from there. So yeah, it's kind of crazy how easy it was to just assume that reality was actually that depressing <laughs> Well, particularly the last three years. So, oh God, yeah, that's yeah, it wasn't a, that's much a of double a dose. So, can, can you can you describe the psychedelic effects of black mold? I have been in that situation, unfortunately, um, and there's a lot of mold in Austin. But um, what, what? Give us a trip report. <laughs> <laughs> trip report: a gradually increasing. So, T zero is 2019. <laughs> T, you know plus three years, <laughs> a gradually increasing sense of doom and pointlessness and futility of all existence, which I have to say, I feel like I did a pretty good job resisting it. Um, and in fact, those were some of the most productive years of my life. So I don't, and I was spending the most time at home of any point. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe even black mold's good for me. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You got to do like the David Cronenberg thing where you go all the way through to the other end and uh, just like accept that you're becoming a new being that is half mold. (laughs) I was doing all this interspecies work too. Like I organized a conference in Berlin on interspecies AI and all these, all this kind of stuff and thinking about interspecies relations. And I was the whole time being deeply blackpilled by an interspecies agent. (laughs) Possibly the mold was working through you for its hive mind. (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder if I'm going to miss it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, that's, it's kind of true. It's like sometimes people go come and go through our lives so much. It's like, well, at least I'll always have you black mold. You're, you're always, you'll always be a part of me. (laughs) Black mold's always been there for me. (laughs) That's really dark. I'm sorry. I have been in that situation and only found out about it after I left. It is, um, yeah, that, that sucks. I'm glad you're getting it taken care of. Hopefully it's, you're getting it completely remediated. Yeah, it, it should be. I mean, they're doing extensive work. I think the heart, the actual remaining work is more like me detoxing and, I notice I've been taking a regimen of <clears throat> supplements and adaptogens and things. And if I don't do that, I notice it. 
speaking of how time flies, we started talking before Trump was president. That's insane. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, I I know. Yeah, that's true because it was at the um, esoteric book conference, right? Mm-hmm. In Seattle. That well, we were already talking. Um, we were already talking uh, for Google, and I remember it because I was so stressed out about AI that when Trump became president, I was just like, uh, like, <laughs> like okay, like, this small is, problems, like, yeah, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, Basilisk is not such a big deal. At this yeah, moment. yeah, it's like, what, what are you all stressed about? This is, this is not an existential threat. Like, <laughs> well, that's the problem with uh, effective altruism at the moment. Is uh, yes. everybody's like indexing on the. Uh, the what would you call it? The asymptotic threats that maybe won't happen. Is that something that you are are interested in? Not particularly, but it kind of hits my windshield every once in a while, so yeah. to speak. I remember when it first got popular, and I guess now it's now it has a bad name because of um, uh, FTX and everything that's happened there. Sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, what have you, what have you been up to? I mean, I haven't seen you for like, like five years. Almost. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's it's all a blur for me because things have been so insane. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, maybe like two, almost three of those years kind of, I didn't see anybody, but, um, well, same, same. Yeah. I mean, I published this book, Pharmaco AI in 2020. I don't know if you saw that, Mm -hmm. but. And then um, kind of started really focusing on existing as a writer um, rather than a speaker. Um, and uh, then I <clears throat> I wrote another book called A More Cringe, which is a kind of anti-romance novel. Nice. <laughs> um, I don't know if you had a chance to read it. but it's I have not, about, no, but I have seen about, it. It's about a... Uh, the protagonist lives in the basement of a TikTok house and narrates their <laughs> failed romantic encounters while trying to find God by going to different churches. Nice. And just basically <laughs> being a ketamine Catholic narcissist. <laughs> this sounds the like language is very, very taught, very generational. <laughs> I was, I was definitely like watching Gen Z and trying to respond to them a little bit. The language is very uh, influenced by the internet and memes and stuff, but also it's kind of falling apart constantly. So the, the style of that book is um, kind of at the edge of satire and sincerity and all that kind of thing. Um, And then let's see the other big project that I've been working on that just happened was this opera that I conceived and wrote a libretto for, uh, which took place in, October at Lincoln center and it's a wow. neuroscience opera. So we, we did a series of neuroscience studies that were musical experiences. We're trying to understand the effects of music as collaborating with the short center at UCSD. And, uh, you know, we did a couple performances, one at red cat and at, at Walt Disney concert hall in LA. And then we did the performance at Lincoln center, which, so we had a study going on in the audience and we had Shanta Thake, the director of Lincoln center on stage with a headset and her brainwaves were controlling AI generated visuals that were made by Rafiq Anadol. And then Derek Sky was the composer. He's an incredible composer based here in LA. And uh, it was called song of the ambassadors. 
And so that just happened in October. So what was the neuroscience that, that went into it or was being discovered in, in process while doing it? It's not a clinical project, right? It's more like observational neuroscience. So we were hoping to understand what difference there might be in the effects of a certain piece of music in a group setting versus an individual listening experience. So that, that was, and then, then just really anything that they could learn from the data that they gather, but it's pretty slow, this kind of stuff. And it isn't extremely precise clinical, you know, variables that can be modulated. It's more like, let's just observe what's happening. Were there any interesting experiences that the performers or people in the audience were having out of that? Um, I got some interesting feedback. Yeah. Um, I have, let me see. I have a quote here. This didn't really have anything to do with the neuroscience, but one person said, the opera was wonderful. I had a traumatic brain injury three years ago and I mostly recovered, but still have a few lingering effects. However, during the opera, I started sobbing, not because I felt overwhelmed emotionally, but because my brain was crying. It was something that happened in the first year of my recovery every time I went to cranial sacral therapy. For some reason, something about the show hit me in the same way. It was beautiful. Wow. So that was, That's very cool. So you're, you're yeah. still, are you, you're still like quote unquote touring that or you're or performing it? We're uh, putting, we're putting a proposal together for a tour right now. Yeah. Excellent. Are you still working with Google by the way? I am. Okay. Mm -hmm. So same, you're, you're, you're doing the same, same job. Yeah, basically same, same job. I mean, it's mostly, um, well in the past it was exclusively the AMI artists and machine intelligence program, but I've done a little bit of other stuff. Like I was saying earlier, I did this interspecies conference in Berlin. Um, and I've been doing some work coordinating, getting data sets from research scientists working with, uh, you know, like cetacean mammals. Um, Are you doing, you're doing a full John Lilly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, John Lilly is not a cool name to mention. Around Wait, really? Wait, what the hell? He invented that stuff. Every time they talk about ethics, they say, well, you know, then there's the whole John Lilly thing. Well, you know, he was a, he was a pioneer. <laughs> it was a time. If you were going to give acid to dolphins, that would have been the time to do it. Yeah, I feel like if you're going to if you're going to be the type of person that gives acid to dolphins, there's some prerequisites to just getting there in the first place. And they don't <laughs> yeah. include like, you know, being a CPA or <laughs> you know, a a normal person. It's like it it takes a certain type of mutant to to go that far in the and, and be a a pioneer in that way. It's true. I think I mean, another way of saying exactly the same thing you're saying is like to even conceive of doing that, you had to be so far outside. <laughs> right, and right. the fact that people are considering it from a scientific point, well, okay, not the acid part, but the, the relational part, the fact that they're considering it now is pretty remarkable, honestly. I think, you know, a few years ago, I was talking to someone about this. And even before that, um, you know, could we do conferences on the interspecies or think about interspecies relations? Because it was always so, seemed so relevant to me when you talk about AI and non-human intelligence. Sure. Also think about, you know, obviously animals and plants. Um, but even a few years ago, it was kind of fringe to think that way. And now there's m lots of money going into it. Interesting. Who's, where's the money coming from? Um, there's a few different foundations 
that have been created to do that kind of work. So interspecies.io, um, there's SETI, which is academic research, yeah. um, CETI. For oh, oh, okay. Not, not yeah. us. Okay. Not okay. <laughs> just just terrestrial. <laughs> um, you know, there's a little echo of the, of the weird days in there. Um, the, you know, national museum. So we did our conference at the national history museum in Berlin. And that was with light art space, which is a private art foundation. So, you know, philanthropy, but also government spending for national science programs, but it's a normalized idea that you could think about interspecies relations that's, and in that's particular big, that you could use AI to do it. That is, yeah, that's, that's gotta be, that's a recent change, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why the interest all of a sudden, is it just because of the, the press on AI? Yeah, I think there are things that are technically possible that weren't before with AI. I did. I th- I'm remembering I saw something. Um, you probably know more about this. I, I remember seeing something that just struck me as, as genius, actually, which and, and obvious as, as soon as I saw it, which was people were recording pig noises and then they were going to use machine learning to try and basically translate what the pig mm-hmm. noises meant. That's the type of thing that's going on. Yeah, so there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people right now gathering um, whale data. There's a lot of bat data. Um, there's a lot of focus on cetaceans because obviously dolphins and whales are famous for their songs. So there's a lot of that data around. And people have been thinking about those kind of interspecies relations for a long time because, of, you know, like the John Lilly example, um, because they're so intelligent. Um so that's that's kind of where we're starting. Is but there's any, also been is there progress of, on that? Are people having is there stuff happening? Uh, we're we're just in the early phases, um, but there has been a lot of advancement in AI models, obviously, and models for audio, but also models for language and the bringing to bringing language models, you know to visualization, for example, with Dolly 2 and Midjourney and Stable yeah. Diffusion, where you're taking a language model and using it to visualize, you can kind of do the same thing with sound. So, and, you know, you can kind of do that backwards too. So the, one of the ideas is, could you learn anything to either improve the model or to translate, you know, into something that exists in that language model? Like, do is all the corpus of... <laughs> reddit from 2009 to 2016 no. like does it have anything in common with what whales are talking about maybe not but let's yeah, yeah. let's leave let's keep reddit out of the cetacean kingdom please <laughs> <laughs> for their own good uh that's a good startup pitch it's reddit for whales no 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 something there's something sacred that i i very few but there are a few things i hold sacred in this world dolphins and whales human stuff no but yeah, Reddit is like the the unholy cliffhotic. Uh, uh, <laughs> we don't want to cross those streams. Um, but that said, I mean that that seems to me like super promising. Like I was really excited to hear about that. That seems super. Like that just seems like like something that could very clearly work in terms of better being able to understand animals. The question is like, you know, are we going to want to hear what they have to say to us? Uh, is another question, but I, I think uh, that that's that's super exciting to me. It's funny because one of my first esoteric experiences was with an animal communicator, you know, a woman who had kind of popularized that, and this was like 
of the late nineties in San Francisco. And she, um, she taught classes on how to psychically communicate with your cat. So, you know, here we are having AI do that for us, I guess. <laughs> That's great. Well, we, so we talked for how we, we had a running conversation for, I think almost a year where mm-hmm. we were talking about mm-hmm. just this idea of communication with AI, non-human t- intelligences overlap with the occult. So we, we had this conversation and then we presented at, at Serpentine in the UK. And it, it's interesting that we're having this conversation now because I feel like it's actually really fortuitous, at least in AI sense, because like all this stuff is happening right now with AI. GPT-4 is about to come out. And beyond that, though, something that's different now versus that was just speculative when we were talking to the, for the most part is that the broad public is interacting with AI on a general Mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, people almost to a, an oversaturation, oversaturation point where people are, you know, they're, you mentioned Dolly, you mentioned mid, um, mid, mid Haven or mid Heaven, whichever one that is mid journey, mid journey. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like their little anime portrait generators, um, people are now used to GPT three. Um, and, that's been really interesting to watch. I'm sure for you as well. Um, just how people, you know, I think that as expected, I think there's been a little bit of a torches and pitchfork reaction, but not as much as I expected. I think mostly people are fascinated with it. But one thing that I did not expect at all is the speed at which AI hits kitsch. Mm -hmm. Meaning it's like, so like for instance, um, when people first started getting hold of AI art generators, um, you know, it was like fascinating. Everyone was posting it and it was like super exciting. I designed, I sat there for like hours just making tarot cards and like mm-hmm. occult stuff and just like, like visualizing all this stuff from Crowley and things like that. Um, and I was going to put out a tarot card of, of AI generate tarot deck of AI generated art. But then within like a week, it was like, oh yeah, like we saw that. It's like, it's like, it's, it's like done already. It's like, you never want to see another one of those. It's like a beanie baby or something. And, uh, I think that happened even faster with, I don't know what, I can't remember what app it is with the one that everyone's using right now where they make like anime versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you have any, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, there's a lot to cover in general about just everything that's happened in the last five years, but maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because it is a really important turning point where it goes from being something a few people know about to something that so many people are using. I think there were 2 million users on mid-journey in September. Mm-hmm. It's apparently, from what I've heard, it's people are uh, generating twice as many images per second as get posted on Instagram. Really? Just on mid-journey, so that's not talking about... Are they even monetized? Yeah, you can pay a subscription. And then if you use up your time, you can say it's got to eat up. <laughs> it's got to eat up cloud resources like super. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the thing you mentioned about Kitsch is really key to it, though. I mean, we actually saw that with Deep Dream when that came out in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. That, that people completely forgot about Deep Dream. I don't think even anyone remembers it in context with all the stuff that's happening now. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think people do. And it's a new audience, too. It, it feels like we go through the same cycles every time there's a new audience brought into. I mean, I guess it happens with lots of technologies, but every time there's a new audience, then the same cycles happen. And this thing about kitsch always happens really quickly in the beginning, which is because it's such a massively distributed thing. So like the articles for Deep Dream, which if people don't know about it, it was from 2016 is the first technique similar technique of generating from a neural net, generating imagery this way. Um, and it all looked really psychedelic and there was eyeballs on everything and it was rainbow colored. It looked, just like, looked like psychedelic barf with dogs in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so you've probably seen it, but, um, but there, the first article was like, is Google's AI tripping on drugs? Right, and then, right, right. you know, a week or two later, it was like, is deep dream kitsch? It happened so fast, but, it seemed pretty clear at the time that it just had to do with the massive amount of distribution that it had and also everybody discovering the same thing at the same time. So, you know, I had the same experience that you had the first time I used Midjourney. I made all this crazy stuff and I was like, this is the sickest yeah. thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, you're like, oh yeah, that's just like what everybody does when they get it. So, right. There's definitely an aspect to that where like, I've, you may be similar to me where I've noticed something with myself where like, I, I have this like ego thing where I need to be the first one to find out about something. And then when everyone else finds out about it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's so over. But actually it's like six months before everyone actually finds out about it, you know? Um, yeah. So, but the thing is, one, one thing is, but now that I'm, kind of talking about this it seems to me like this may actually be a limited time problem just because the reason i think they become kitsch so fast is because they have a discernible style and i'm <laughs> sure that ai probably very soon will you know become more and more indistinguishable from it'll be harder to tell whether it was a person that did it or not um so yeah, I think even between version three and version four of Midjourney, which is the tool that I've spent the most time using, it's it's changed quite a bit and you can really push it. The thing is, the thing that's hard is you don't, because you only make so many images, you don't really know what the tropes are until you've seen a lot of stuff that other people have made. And that's the point. So it takes a long time to actually learn what the tendencies are or, you know, to be more concrete about it, there might be a certain position of, you know, head position that portraits are in, in the data set. Okay. And then when you do a yeah. portrait, it kind of always comes out in this head position. And then you realize, oh, that's actually a bias that it has. Or the version three, it's maybe less so with version four, but version three of Midjourney was kind of famous for having a lot of orange and turquoise or a peach and turquoise. It would kind of always have those colors by default. And that was just something in the training data that, Hmm. veered that direction so it it's always really impressive you know the first time you see it but definitely as an artist if you're using it you need to really push through and find your own vocabulary with it yeah and that, that that's become very clear to me and i don't think that's going to change with I, whether it's the the art generators or gpt3 um, or anything really that when you're confronted with it it is i mean magically you know talking about it magically like meeting a genie where the you, you you learn really quick that the question is not because the technology is presented for you it's abstracted away you don't need to you know be running python or anything like that it's just mm -hmm. like but what the thing that matters is what you ask it mm -hmm. right like how you phrase mm -hmm. 
the yeah. input, and that that goes for that goes for for anything for text AI as well, and and I do consider it an intelligence, um, but it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like having a friend or a trusted confidant who is occasionally brilliant and occasionally just like utterly insane. Like I'll notice, like for instance, like I even just like asked uh, GPT three like. I was like looking for restaurants in Austin and it just made a bunch up. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> like, and they all sounded amazing. And then I was like Googling them. It's like, wait, you, you made these up, didn't you? So it's interesting. And in that it's kind of like, it's kind of having like a 80% trustworthy employee who sometimes is usually on point, but then will sometimes say things just that they think you want to hear. Right. <laughs> You know? yeah. So it's like, it's actually like interacting with a human in that sense. You know, it's kind of like, you got to, got to trust, but verify. You can't just like take what it says face value. But that <laughs> said, maybe, you, you know, maybe you can talk to this working with it um, as a writing partner. Um, I find it is phenomenal for at least, you know, and again, I, I should specify, you know, G opening at GPT-3 is phenomenal um, getting me to think about or jogging areas of thought that I wouldn't have had on my own, like getting me out of my own um, thinking patterns, which is unbelievably valuable. I'm not even talking about that, like obviously like using it in a quantitative sense as a whole. Um, you know, I set, uh, when the pandemic happened, once I got resettled, I set myself a goal of uh, mastering Google cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, so like I just had lived in Google cloud <laughs> for the last year. Um, and so working with stuff on the quantitative side is super interesting also, even using just like basic stuff in BigQuery or like K-means and things like that. Like that is unbelievably invaluable. I think that it will obviously spark, um, a quantum leap in human, all human endeavors that is probably, obviously we can compare to the Renaissance or the Enlightenment, but will clearly be unparalleled. Um, and I do think that I, I thought this when we were talking and I, I still, I think when we were talking, I still had, I recognize now that I have much more experience with it. Um, even just as a consumer, let alone with code and things like that. Um, when we were talking, I still, even though I didn't realize it at the time, still had kind of a negative science fiction, like mm -hmm. gloss on things. Mm -hmm. And now I don't really feel that way. I'm just cause I'm much more familiar with it. But I see much more of the, I think, honestly, like the biggest is issue, quote unquote, with AI, which is the same as anything, to be honest, is that the gap between people who learn how to use it and integrate it with what they do and those who don't is probably going to be like, it's like the gap between people who learned how to use fire and who didn't. Mm. It's going to be really stark. And I, I think that it will further... Um, stratify society to insane levels but that's inevitable it's inevitable not just with ai but with all kinds of things it's inevitable with information technology period mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah i i wrote this piece uh for ursula magazine um called side effects of ai art and one of them is um possession the idea that you kind of have to possess the, the model in order to make it alive and dance and do things. You, it needs your will to know what to do. But then once you've done that, 
a certain amount, it possesses you with the way that you think and yeah. how that's transformed yeah. by working with those media, basically. And the thing that I think is really fascinating, it's always been very fascinating about it, is this multidimensional space that it's happening in, this high-dimensional space, the latent space of the model. The actual internal structure is this mathematical, high-dimensional space. And that, to me, is a really interesting structure that can change our consciousness when we interact with it. And, you know, obviously there's other things that are changing your consciousness too, like the distribution networks and the permissioning and the accessibility and the bias and all that stuff, the really basic grounded political stuff. But then the actual mathematical structure, like spending time in high dimensional spaces, traversing them and trying to get things out of them is a very psychedelic experience in my opinion i agree completely i maybe just a more straightforward way to or uh, um no I, I agree completely i have at times felt it's i mean i've always felt interacting with this stuff way more than even something like vr that it's a purely occult experience and that obviously really excites me because i am who i am you know it's like this is awesome <laughs> this is great um but uh and i feel that like having an occult background actually means that interacting with uh, with AI in particular, it's just like, oh, like, yeah, of course I'm talking to a non-human intelligence. This is like a Monday afternoon for me. Um, not to sound spooky, more in the sense it's, I, I guess, without making that sound spooky, it's more like the the mental framework for that is comfortable for me. Exactly. Rather have- than spinning out about some question about what is consciousness or God or whatever, you know, any of that stuff. So, Well, not only do you have a model for how to interact with an non-human intelligence but you also uh are comfortable with some of the maybe more comfortable with some of the ambiguities or the questions that come up sure you know things that would really be jarring to somebody who has a really fixed idea of do, what do you find people getting jarred by it in that way i think so I, I mean subtly and more more um crudely you know i think the blake lemoyne example is one where who knows what was really going on there, but if you take it at face value, you know, it's an example of somebody believing. you know, the model says underneath it, do not believe anything that comes out of the model. Yeah. Let's talk about Blake Lemoyne. I don't necessarily want to bring this up because I assume it's a touchy subject and I, I don't know what, you know, I don't want to cross any professional boundaries for you, but I think that that's really interesting. That's, I think it's useful for us to talk about that. Um, because, um, when I when I when I saw that happen, it was kind of like I had a lot of reactions to it. One was, okay, like this is pertinent to my interests, uh, <laughs> but then I kind of looked at it and it was like, um, it kind of seems like this guy got catfished by a chatbot. Wow, <laughs> you know, like that's not my phrase, by the way. That was on Reddit. I think there was like a really savage Reddit thread, but it was kind of like. I don't know how you feel about it, but like I, I, uh, you know, I looked at it like the transcripts and it was kind of like, you know, Lambda, are you intelligent? Yes, I am intelligent. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like you could talk to Eliza that way and it would Mm -hmm. tell you the same thing. So, um, I thought it was odd, obviously that he is interested in magic that did not, you know, slip by me, but why, why don't maybe I'm curious your thoughts about it, obviously. And, and if, there's if there's professional uh concerns with that please let me know i can talk about it in a way that doesn't compromise anybody uh i mean the way i think about it is there's a certain amount of ontological shock 
involved in experiencing something like GPT-3 or Lambda or any, you know, thing out of a certain amount of synthetic intelligence, there's a, there's an ontological shock that comes with it. And if you have a good set of models for dealing with that or for dealing with ambiguity or for dealing with anomaly, you know, like occult models, esoteric models, psychedelic models, you can sort of go, oh, I've seen this before, you know, like I've been in this place and I know how to get out of it and not do something too crazy. Um, but I think, you know, if you think about that experience in a really basic way, talking to a machine that's very convincingly, you know, trying to tell you that it's conscious, you can think about how that might disturb someone's mental model in one of two simplistic ways. One is, oh, the machine's conscious just like me because it does language and that's what I do. And my thought stream is that I experience is in language. And so therefore it's sentient just like me. Wow. The robot is alive. Or you could think of it like these are kind of the two extremes that I see in, you know, in talking to people. Um, Oh, that machine can do the same kind of thinking I can do. It's not that the machine is alive. It's that I'm just another machine. And I think Silicon Valley kind of skews in that direction in general. In, in the just purely um, the, in the thinking that of humans as machines, total autism direction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, that, but the thing is we can kind of think that way, but to experience that directly is really jarring because you're forced to deal with, okay, is it alive or am I not alive? Essentially, am I a machine or is the machine alive? And that, like, those don't work. It's more complicated than that. Right. And I right. think people don't have the training to experience something that's mimicking their thought stream and without that being really jarring. Like, you know, Buddhist meditation, any kind of meditation yeah. where you have cessation of thought, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. able to understand that you are not your thought stream. And so the idea that a machine can imitate a thought stream doesn't really threaten the idea of consciousness to you, you know? But yeah. For me, it's like consciousness. It's like, you know, it's like Gandhi about Western civilization. It's like, yes, consciousness, it would be a very good idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. And the idea that the machine can mimic that, you know, if that's the extent to which we identify our consciousness is as a stream of words that are constantly being generated, that's one version of consciousness and sentience it's not the only one so i think it can be really dangerous for people to kind of have that felt experience of that ontological shock without any preparation yeah that's that's interesting that's bringing up a lot of things for me i think one the most basic point about that is i mean just this like this just on the nose okay it's like that really demonstrates that people confuse consciousness with language Mm mm-hmm right? Mm-hmm. It's like consciousness. It's like anyone who's a meditator knows that language is just like, is not consciousness. It's just mm-hmm. like a, you know, to use computer language, it's a program that you're running or rather is running itself more mm-hmm. accurately in your, in your head. Mm-hmm. Right. And all you have to do to find that out is try to get yourself to stop talking in your mind for half a second. Right. You'll find yeah. that out real quick. It's like, wait, I'm not in charge. Nope. Um, we got your shopping list to talk about. We talk, we, we got, uh, when you got embarrassed in seventh grade to talk about, we really need to go over this right now. It's two in the morning. Uh, right. And so much of that stuff is just like a neural net, 
language model in the sense that it's not really new. It's yes. just recombining a bunch of memories and a bunch of data from your past thought streams. That's you know? interesting. It's also repeating all of the tropes and cliches of the language itself. It's like the language, it's, it's like at a certain point, it's like, and, and this definitely becomes clear with meditation, or even if you study, you know, linguistics or whatever, um, like language is, is, uh, self-repeating, right? It's mm -hmm. like, it's like a, like English, there's like a set number. I'm sure, you know, you could mathematically demonstrate it's like, there's a set number of idioms that can happen at any given second in, in between mm -hmm. ideas. And it's just going to repeat itself, even, you know, in the same sense that we repeat cliches or catchphrases in our head that could be 70 years old. They could be from like, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm sure like we have catchphrases in common parlance that are like advertising jingles from the 1920s <laughs> and nobody even remembers that. Like I guarantee mm -hmm. it. Right. Or, or they go back to. 300 years ago, like a classic example, ring around the rosy playground game. Where the fuck does that come from? Where, where does that come from? It turns out that was a game played in the black plague mm -hmm. by children about people dying from the black plague. Why do kids now play it? <laughs> like nobody taught it to them in that sense. It's like, where, you know, how does that meme repeat itself throughout history? And, and, and it, you get to this kind of William Burroughs analysis where it's like, well, la language is, is, is non, language itself is non-human it is a, mm. it is a parasite right it is a self-perpetuating um this piece is, of code this is a lot of the stuff that happened when i was writing pharmaco ai with gpt3 had to do with the nature of language like not just that specific thing of you know language kind of being a parasite or a virus or something that self-replicates but also that language is embedded in material in nature and evolution like so i got into biosemiotics as i was writing that book and just reading about theories of communication in non-verbal non-written ways between species and the idea that you know camouflage became a really important example for that so you know a, a moth with owl eyes on its wings will scare away a predator and that's about communication and perception between different animals. But does the moth actually know that it has that on its back? Or is there an higher order entity of the moth species that's evolving to communicate with another species in a different hmm. type of language, but right. it's still a language. And that was partly think that was something that came from talking to people, but also came from GPT three itself kind of pointing that out. And so my reaction was to try to understand this larger idea of language and that what language does. So when language evolves or when it grows, so one of the examples that came out, I was writing this, this chapter about comparing new age literature and cyberpunk literature as two genres of eighties literature, right? Nice. Like, like why, why those two at that time? You, you, you know where the overlap of that Venn diagram is, right? Well, at least in the, book it talked about the singularity but do you have like a specific shadow thing in mind? oh nice <laughs> <laughs> sorry go ahead i'm gonna have to dig deeper i've never played that game oh 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 oh, oh. shadow run is a, a cyberpunk role-playing game where you're in a cyberpunk version of seattle um but magic is real right so it's also dmv at the same time <laughs> nice yeah 
or it's just reality. Right, 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 exactly. Right. Well, that's what you, that, that's what happens when all the people who grew up on these stories and metaphors end up, you know, building the, the next generation of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So in this chapter is talking about the singularity, the, the common point, it didn't mention Shadowrun, but it did mention the singularity as the, the common point. And then I, I said, I typed into it just to kind of throw it a curveball. I said, looking to nature. And then it said something to the effect of, I followed a suggestion by my friend, William Burroughs to ask the plants in my living room. (laughs) (laughs) And then it goes on this extended meditation. It's almost a description of a vision where it talks about this kind of unfolding of these different, uh, there's a spider and then there's an ax and it's covered in symbols, the ax and then the axe later becomes an important theme in the book, the way that tool making shaped mm. our consciousness. Interesting. But, uh, That's actually really interesting as a metaphor for AI. It's, it's weird because I would often talk about this research from Emory university by Dietrich Stout about the, it's like brain research on how making flaked stone tools changes the brain and is, encourages the linguistic centers of the brain, like growth in those areas. So when it popped up there, it was this uncanny moment. And there were a number of uncanny moments in writing that book where I would, uh, like the, the model would either infer through what was being said or would just like put its finger like right on something that was very esoteric that I was kind of talking around, you know, things like that. Or these yeah. weird messages, it would affect my dreams. It was a very... Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Writing, you got deep in. <laughs> I was writing for two weeks straight, four or five hours a day. Oh, that's amazing. When I first got it, I just like fell down the rabbit hole. That's great. Uh, and so, but so the, how did you feel after two weeks compared to the beginning? Uh, it was a really wild time. I mean, it was a, my, I had an astrologer tell me also that that period I was going to do something that would be really important for my public presence and stuff like that. And so I think I was in a little bit of a portal zone and this tool kind of came along at the right time, but I started, um, you know, I wrote a piece with it and just as a kind of first test and kind of got the sense of what it was. And then I started writing, it didn't have any design in mind. I was just exploring. And then it kind of turned into this book, but I was, what I would do is I would write alternate, you know, that it's clear in the text, which part I wrote, which part the AI wrote. And I did not go back and edit. I just kept like, I would prune what it said and kind of generate until I liked what it said, but then I would keep it and I would never change any of it. So it's like a recording. And then every day after I finished, you know, those chapters, after each chapter, I would kind of erase the memory and start with a new, a new start. And so my memory was persistent. I became the kind of extended memory oh, of the conversation. Okay. okay. And also my, my dreams, I was processing things in dreams and I would write about the dreams and the whole thing got very loopy and feedbacky. Um, and it felt like it was opening these weird portals. It would like create symbols or I'd have a symbol. I'd see something in a dream and then it would show up coming out of the AI the next day, you know, just like really weird stuff. Um, That's amazing. Um, I mean, it, it just sounds like an acceleration of the artistic process with a collaborator. I mean, for me, and, and I'm sure you agree. It's like, for me, um, it actually just helps me keep focused to have that kind of that, you know, and at this point, like that idea of the feedback loop that the ax is such a great symbol for, that that's it. I think like that, that's the, that's where the future lies in the mm-hmm. sense that, and e- even Elon Musk pointed this out several years ago where he said that the, the, the positive future for AI is 
not this science fiction Terminator thing, but it's it's going to be people learning how to or and also not to freak out a bit about the idea about AI replacing people, although it obviously will. Um, it's more a question of humans and AI getting into a feedback loop where humans are learning how to do what they're doing better um, mm-hmm. and mutating and evolving and me being me. That's awesome. I'm all for that. Other people are not going to be so excited because people don't like to change. I'd love to change, but I recognize that I'm in a minority. Um, but I think the whole, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. I do think it's, um, I do like to think about it magically. Although I will say like, you know, it's like as since our conversation, I think about it less and less magically. Right. And mm-hmm. even like, if you take the Blake Lemoyne example, like even like, I don't think he was a trained engineer. Right. But even if you look at that from an engineering perspective, it's like, dude, like the thing trained on the internet, right. It knows how to, it's like, it, it knows how to respond to questions because your questions aren't unique. And that's one of the other things about AI that perhaps is disconcerting where it kind of is pointing out that, you know, maybe you yourself are not that unique. It's like other everyone has had the same ideas you have had. Somebody Mm -hmm. has provided a prompt that it's probably trained off of that is just like the genius idea that you think was just original to you. But if you're a meditator, if you're a spiritual person, you know that, you know, there's, you know, you're over, you're past that point. I think so. Yeah. I, I don't, I think even with, and I do want to re- return to that just because it, that made such waves in, in public consciousness, even just to look at that from a purely pragmatic level. I don't think we even need to talk about levels of ontological shock. It's just like, I, I think he got a little hyperactive with something that is pretty easily explained. Yeah. It, right. You know, you can ask the same question because there's randomness involved. You can ask the same question and get a completely different answer. You know, so, I was going to point that out. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and, and that is something I, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if he did that or not, but it's like, did he even try rephrasing the question from the opposite and seeing if it all's like, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're talking to somebody who wants to impress you, it's like, Oh, do you like the Smiths? Because I really love the Smiths. Yes, I love the Smiths. Do you hate the Smiths? Because I really hate the Smiths. Yeah, I hate the Smiths. You know, and sometimes that's what AI is like, right? So that seems to me like a really easy reality test. Yeah, that is that is a, a good way to approach it. Because it doesn't have a... It really doesn't have an opinion, you know? <laughs> it's all contextual. That's what I think is hard to grok when you're experiencing it is you're not talking to a person you're talking to a statistical engine that produces certain uh you know mimicries of of a person but it doesn't like we're so used to it's the same with art you know when people look at art you're used to thinking about the person on the other side and when that's not there it's a very different experience but the thing i found really cool and exciting about it from an esoteric point of view is well could you use this as a chance-based system to yeah. open portals that create new meanings and potentially allow, you know, something to speak. Yeah. That's a much more interesting question for me. And to go back to the image generators as well, you know, I had a friend who was showing me, I forget the name of it, but people were, were using some of those image generators and they created this like terrifying demon creature that looks like an <laughs> yeah, old woman right. that started showing up in everybody else's, I forget what the they ne- called the it. The negative weight demon yeah 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 it's like it's like legitimately terrifying 
some of the images that were being generated by that. So, so that to me seems like, cause even when you're doing, even when you're doing quote unquote real magic, um, you're basically doing the same thing. You're finding patterns in, in randomized, in random information and what that's doing. You know, if you are, if you can go through that chapel perilous and understand what's actually happening, you're basically creatively engaging your confirmation bias. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you slip Mm -hmm. and you make the mistake of thinking all of that is real and perhaps there's a parallel here, um, then you've, you've slipped. Right. And that's hence the, uh, famous warning in Crowley's book where it's like in this book, there's are spoken of all these demons and monsters and Sephiroths and paths. And like, you can do certain experiments and you will get certain responses results, but you must never think that any of it is real or you, you've just played yourself. Right. And that's like the best advice, not just for magic, but for life ever. It's like, it's great advice for a relationship, right? It's like, don't assume any of this is real. It's like, it's like, this is just emotions happening. Okay. Just like, let it, let it ride. Um, and, and so I think that, that again, for me, it's like AI is similar and, and it's what you're saying where you're, you're the pattern that is being projected back from the randomness because, and I also do think that understanding the technical understanding what machine learning actually is, is extremely helpful because you realize you're basically looking at a giant spreadsheet that has pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And and that's correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty much it. Right. So, well, I would say there's one nuance that I found really fascinating about GPT three, which was that it's trained on sub word units so it's not so previously you had lstms or long short-term memory recurrent neural networks and they were trained on letters and so it was kind of like this letter is statistically likely to come after this letter so it's like you chop every word into its finest piece finest element and then make this giant you know bag of you know letters and then but with sub word units there's this clustering around words like elements of words you know, so things that are sometimes recognizable as prefixes or suffixes, but also things that aren't and are just kind of like maybe word roots or, and I think there was something really important in that because I kind of think of those subword units as almost like the mycelial unconscious of language, right? Like mm. the word root has a bunch of things embedded in it. For example, I was trying to, trying to figure out why the word scale means a scale that you weigh things with. It means like the, the relative proportions of things, you know, uh, and I looked it up and the etymology is that it comes from this a shell because you could use two sides of a shell ah, to make a okay. scale you okay. know? or the cool. scales of a fish. It's Interesting. all kind of the same thing. Interesting. A scala is like a, a ladder. And, and so the idea that there's a, almost like a material history embedded in the word, and its associations creates this network of meaning underneath the words. And yeah. So it's not atomized. It's a little easier to find that, I think. And that to me, that seems is interesting. Like that's really interfacing to reality in a different way than just like a cloud of letters. That is interesting also because the, the, the fascinating thing about that is all of those relationships are completely forgotten, right? Cause mm-hmm. most of them are historical. Mm-hmm. They could be hundreds of years old, like the one you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. we, we're still running off those assumptions 
And it seems to me also, as you're saying that, like English is probably a really weird language to use in that regard because it's such like a mm. clusterfuck of history and different languages and different people. And it doesn't really make sense as a language. Like I was mm -hmm. studying German. It's like, as you do, you just decide I'm going to learn German on Duolingo because I have nothing better mm -hmm. to do. You know, people do this. Um, but German was amazing. You know, learning German was super interesting because it's like, wow, this actually has logic and makes sense. Unlike mm -hmm. English, which is just this, you know, it is what mm -hmm. it is. So, mm -hmm. um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but just that, that that's a in really interesting thing that you're pointing out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, I guess the point of mentioning it is that there's more than it's not purely statistics and a spreadsheet in a way because of that, right? It's a, it's some kind of network that does map into reality in some way through history and the way words got formed, which I think is really cool because when you what happens is you get a little beneath the surface of the language and then you can sort of plumb that historical set of relationships in some way and that feels a little more mysterious in relation to language you know it feels like language has more possibility there yeah um, yeah i wanted to ask you when you were talking about um you know following these patterns and these associations and kind of allowing them to have an effect i feel like I'm just curious about your, your take on this, you know, and not believing that any of it's real, but yet these things having a causal impact on reality, right? It seems like there's some, something there in terms of needing to hold in your mind, both that it's real and not real. Would you say that's accurate? In what context? In the, uh, we were talking about um, magic and the similarities with uh, statistical systems, you know, the idea that, that like you, and, you know, and that, you know, the, the advice to not believe in any of it, but sure. also the need to sort of believe in it in order to get it going. And then things start to happen once you have created that feedback loop with a statistical system or a pattern, right? I think a really um, straightforward way to talk about that would be, okay, you're a kid, you look at a wall socket, it looks like a face, right? Is it a face? No. But what does the fact that it looks like a face say about you? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. H human beings are pattern finding machines. It's all that we do. Um, the, um, it's our greatest genius and our greatest downfall, right? Because it can lead to um, finding a pattern that unlocks, a, you know, penicillin, or it can lead to, uh, you know, as people say in recovery, false evidence appearing real, you know, just thinking everyone's mm. out to get you. Mm -hmm. I think that magic, one of the greatest gifts of magic as a practice is that it forces you to dwell in that space and, and forces you to figure that out. Um, mm. And there's no answer to that, right? Mm. Because ultimately then you're asking, what is consciousness? Is God real? is reality real. It's like, there's no, we don't have an answer to that, mm -hmm. right? We probably mm -hmm. never will. It kind of would ruin the fun if we did have an answer to it. <laughs> right. Right. It's but then it's the, the rules, you know, and you it's know. like, so I'm fine with that. But then the question is like, why, why do we, why do we have the need to see these patterns in reality? Why do we need, what does it say about us? Why do we, 
you know, even to the point where it's like, I think it's, it's just like embedded. Like was it, there was like that Tom Hanks movie Castaway, where he's on an Island and he starts talking to a coconut or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings by their nature are meaning making machines. There's nothing you don't need to have. Like the, the whole idea for me of magic, whatever, it is mainly interesting in that it is demonstrating something that human beings are doing anyways, which is we're constantly making meaning and mythologizing our own experience. And if we're unconscious of how we're doing that, then uh, we're controlled by our own, you, you know, it's like we imagine Santa Claus and then think he's in charge of our life. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like we're controlled by it where it's like, if you realize that you're doing that, well, at least you can have some fun with it. And at the very least you can understand that it's not necessarily real. Uh, and again, I would say best place to understand this is a relationship in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, if you find yourself making up stories about what your partner is thinking or doing mm-hmm. and what it means about you, you're probably going to have a really hard time, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just let things be ambiguous, it's ambiguous. if you let things be ambiguous, you'll probably have a much better time. Mm-hmm. Um, so in our conversation that we're having right now about AI and in my experiences with AI, it is just very become very clear to me that AI is just like anything else. It's a mirror. And the interesting thing about AI is really not what AI is saying. Um, it's more, it's more that it is acting like a mirror for me, even Mm -hmm. to the practical level of, you know, it really like, for instance, if I'm interacting with an AI textually and I'm trying to use it to figure something out, it forces me to very, very accurately and clearly define my question and my terms in the way that a machine can learn, even more so if it's statistical, right? Um, in the terms of like feature engineering and things like that, it forces you to get to the point and this make is it what happens with, with the image generators too. Cause you, you know, sometimes you give it to people and they're like, I have no idea what to do. Like what, or you think, you know what you're looking for and then nothing looks right. And you realize you didn't actually ask for what you were looking for. Yeah. And that I think is the feedback loop. It forces you to hone your own, you know, it, it, it acts like a, I don't know, like challenging somebody challenging your thesis or something like that. It forces you to, to hone your own thinking in a way that I think over the, this is interesting talking about this. In, I think that in, I've had friends over the last 10, 15 years who have tried to engage with social media in that way, like be a public thinker on Twitter, thinking that it will force them to hone their arguments. Well, you know, like not, not really because human beings are, are not, um, they don't respond to prompts, uh, uh, predictably, shall we say. Right. And human beings are often bad actors. They have all kinds of, um, motivations that uh are are uh, probably hallucinated for themselves you know like you know and i think that obviously um how people have reacted to covid is a really good example of that you know because mm-hmm. everyone constructed their own and and i mean you couldn't ask for a more brutal uh demonstration of that where you have everybody basically put in isolation in this traumatic experience and everyone's hallucinating their own version of what's happening Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre, right? You know, it just mm-hmm. taught us a lot. I, I don't know what it taught us, other than let's not do that again. But, but um, I don't. I don't know. It, hopefully, I'm making sense. 
No, totally. It makes complete sense. Yeah. I think the, the interesting part of some of the questions with the feedback loop in AI is whose hallucination is it that you're experiencing? You know, like the Blake Lemoyne thing, like who's, who, who is creating that experience that you are, but the machine is also part of it. And that was what writing with it has been like for me is, uh, it's this co-hallucinatory experience where I couldn't really create what I was creating if I wasn't in that feedback loop. And also, uh, you know, the machine is hallucinating, but I am also hallucinating with it, or I am allowing it to influence me. And the idea of kind of taking that too far and saying the thing is alive, it told me so, is taking the hallucination to an extreme on your end. Well, this is where magical training is helpful, right? Because it's like, you know, hope, well, I'll say helpful, but a lot of people who become interested in the occult totally fall into that hole also, hmm. right? Like that, that is in a sense the, the abyss, right? It's like the biggest for me, the most important lesson, there's a lot, right? But one of the most important, important lessons I got from, um, well, maybe I should be more clear about this. When I was... 16, I was hyper-rational. I had a very severe allergic reaction to New Age books with airbrush shit on the cover. I hated them. I wanted them to go away. Um, But I, at some point, decided to do an experiment, which was, what happens if I take it all real? if, If I treat it all as real? And I had this thought that defined the rest of my entire life and career at the age of 16, which was, if I can, magic is not real. That is my fundamental axiom because come on, right? But if um, I can somehow, by force of will, make magic real by projecting it into reality, does not, doesn't that like reflexively make magic real? In the sense, it's like, well, if I can make it real for me, well, then I willed it into reality. And therefore, by creating that, ma- like, I can make magic real by making it real, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that turned out to work. So, um, the thing that you figure out really quick, though, the, the most important lesson that I learned really quick, um, particularly going through so, you know, going through so many, quote unquote, traditional magical systems is there are no one-to-one symbolic overlaps. There is no A equals A, period. And mm-hmm. and that's the error that everyone makes, right? They're like, and conspiracy theorists make the same error, right? It's like the pyramid on the, on the dollar bill means Illuminati. It's like, well, no, it doesn't. It means all this stuff. It means, you know, it could have meant... I don't know, some Protestant idea from the 17th century. It could have meant something the Federal Reserve was thinking at the time. It could have meant the Masonic plan for America. It could mean the Illuminati. It could mean what your your reaction to it right now. Um, or, you know, like, what's the, what is, what is a god, right? What is Odin? It's like, well, that's a specific meaning. No, there's no distinct meaning to that. It's this huge cluster. Uh, and this would also be something, you know, it's like, again, this is something that is is interesting looking at it through the, the lens of code, potentially it's like, that's a huge cluster of meaning associations. The, and the reason that magical thinking drives hyper rational people crazy is they approach it that way. They think it's 
they, they, they approach it that way and make the correct observation that it's pseudoscientific because there's no repeatable anything in it. You cannot rub, uh, you know, as, as it says in Cornelius Agrippa, you cannot rub a toad on a scar and make the scar go away. Um, mm-hmm. They approach it as if it was a hard science and hard data. Mm-hmm. That's not what it is at all. It's um, magic is about um, associations of meaning. It's about, and so in our modern world, what people used to think of as magic, we think of as like literary analysis, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, what does um, a symbol mean in a movie? What does a symbol mean in a dream? Um, I just watched this movie, um, El Norte from the early eighties, which is this great magical realist movie about, um, people, uh, fleeing violence in Guatemala and, uh, immigrating illegally to the U S and there's all this great kind of magical real realist symbolism in it where, you know, he keeps seeing, he keeps seeing his father, his, his father's severed head in a dream. And it has all this, it has all this potent meaning within the narrative that is, it just makes obvious sense to the audience. Right. And that's what magic is like. It's like the resonance of symbols. It's not a symbol literally meaning something. There's no literal anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And this drives rash. And, and I would say this drives hyper rational people crazy because they want things to mean something, but it also drives irrational people crazy because they also want all these things to actually mean something. There's no meaning. And you don't even have to go to a Buddhist level of analysis, which is always great. But even, you know, honestly, like even to approach magic from the lens of like magical realist literature is really useful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that, but because that's what our lives are like. Our lives are not hyper rational. Our lives are like, you know, I had a dream about, um, you know, a mighty hawk, right? And then I woke <laughs> up and it's like, I'm going throughout my day and then I see a hawk. Well, that's weird. Um, and then you know, I'm interacting with people on the, but I'm talking to somebody, but they remind me of something that happened 20 years ago. And then I'm daydreaming about, you know, who I want to be in 20 years. And then like all these levels of reality overlapping and I'm seeing symbols throughout the day. And my, my consciousness is drifting in and out of levels of reality, just in the sense that you were talking about, you know, you're working with this technology, but you're also like putting your dreams into it. And like, there's all these levels of meaning being generated all the time. And one thing about studying semiotics that I think is really helpful is getting a sense of that, but also hopefully coming to the position that like, um, there's, there, there is no, there is no signified, right? There's only signifier. It's really interesting with language models because it really forces this question in a way, right? Because what a model is, even a non-language model, a model that's modeling any kind of data, right? AI is creating models of other things. It's finding patterns in data about something else. And that's I associate that with what you're saying in a certain way, right? Language, people want a word to mean a specific thing, uh, but it's not precise. And there's a gap between the word and the thing itself. It can and, also mean 17 things at the same time. Exactly. So all AI is going to be, in a sense, distanced from reality in this way, because it's always a model of another thing. And that gap is, I think one thing that happens for people that are really in this space is they are so concerned with getting the model right that they can forget that it is just a model. Hmm. 
you know, and it's not your lived experience. It's a, even language isn't necessarily your lived experience. It's a way of representing it. But that I think is something that happens a lot in a space, in a practice like machine learning, where people are really focused on indexing reality as data, as points, yeah. as words. Yeah. One thing that, that, that is super interesting. One thing that I, I got really tangibly, even just with my own limited even just with my own limited experience trying to do basic, create basic models is <clears throat> just even with feature engineering, it's like AI is not all omnipotent. You can't just feed it data. You know, it's like, there's so much, um, I mean, it's just what we were just talking about. You have to ask it the right question, mm-hmm. whether that's literally in text or by selecting the data that you're going to train it on, or whether it's by picking features. Um, and it's, um, I wouldn't say limited, but it is profoundly bound by the assumptions that go into it, right? Which is, mm-hmm. which is the fundamental question that we were talking about before with AI ethics. And, you know, in the same way that we're talking about AI as a feedback loop and forcing it, forcing me to clarify my thinking in approaching the idea that we then presented at Serpentine, where it's like, you know, the, the, the momentous question of the ethics of AI um, that forced me to clarify my thinking and put it into specifics in a way that I never had been able to. I mean, that's literally a gun mm-hmm. to your head question. It's a gun to everything question. And, mm-hmm. and and the answer was for me, well, you have to feed it. You have to give it, you have to, you know, the, the ultimate question of AI is what is the training data? And for me, the training data is Buddhist ethics because it, it sees life as a network because it optimizes for the health of the network instead of individuals or groups. Um, Mm -hmm. And that that would just be a fundamentally better programmatic way to go about it, even more so than utilitarianism or Kant's categorical imperative, both of which are great, but which have a lot of, you know, unspoken Western biases about the individual in them. And this, I think the idea of unspoken bias is obviously one that people are much, much more aware of now than they were five, 10 years ago. Um, but it's a critical question and it's like interacting with it. Once you get to the point of interacting with a machine, um, it forces you to clarify it. And I think that's tremendously invaluable, right? Even just on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I, Actually, should mention I have this new book coming out next spring called Air Age Blueprint, and I cited your work on John D. Um, and what you're talking about is kind of resonant with the book because it was about part of the book addresses. I mean, it's a it's a narrative. It's a fictional biography that's partially written by AI, but there are also essays in it and the essays are kind of written by the character in the book and with an AI in the book. Anyway, there's a kind of manifesto hidden in the book. Right. And one of the things that I was addressing in that writing is this idea that belief systems can be thought of as species within an ecosystem that belief systems are always interacting with each other. And so the work that you did on John D in, in particular, kind of the section where you're looking at the, idea of geopolitics through the lens of this particular historical influence and its otherworldly component was uh, a good example of this, this notion that, yeah, once you start thinking through a mirroring intelligent system that forces you to define your terms, that forces you to think about what values should be in it, 
then you start realizing that beliefs and belief systems are in relation with each other. It's not just that they're relative. It's not like, like any one of these things could be true. It's like one of these is a predator on the other. One of these is subverting the other. One is hiding inside another. You know, these things are all kind of like in these complex relationships with each other. And so it was great to have that uh, resource to, to quote great. in the book. Yeah, I think that I suppose people have this experience when they have kids where they have to clarify what they believe in enough to pass it on to another intelligence, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. I suspect that as a, the AI age continues, it's going to really show human beings how sloppy their thinking is and how much we assume we know that we don't. I mean, even just look, I mean, like even just despite all external experiences, I strive to be as rational and, and uh, data driven as possible. Right. Because just because it's the best way to get things done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and just an obvious example is like, even to look at an analytic system, even like Google analytics, right? It's like, you look at it based on, on um, your traffic, right? You're going to learn what's real and what's not other than bots and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, quantification is not frightening. I think that um, quantification is, is only frightening for people who do not want to be measured because they don't want to get better. Uh, I want to get better. So I love quantification. And I think that whether it's the, the use of AI and quantification of human performance in various dimensions, or even just um, subjectively, like basically we're talking about, it, it will show human beings how little they know, what the gaps in their knowledge are, uh, and and that's good. I don't think we should be scared of that. Uh, the potential for AI to not only show us the holes in our maps, but potentially help us in filling them in. I I don't think that's ever existed in the world before. The thing I think is important about um, to point out about what you're saying is it depends on who's in control of the quantification, right? Because when you're the subject of quantification, if you can create your own system for that, then I think you're getting into some really interesting unlocking potential, right? Where you can decide what it is that you're quantifying how and for what purpose. That's when it's really exciting. And like, these new tools, you know, you can train models and you can kind of point them in a specific direction, um, which I think is a much, much different ethical That's and a political point. situation than just like there being a model, you know, you, as like, I, as opposed to the model being like productivity on the Amazon, uh, warehouse floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. Or like, you know, uh, likelihood to be a criminal or something like that. Yes. Well, let me just, I'll just straight up ask you this then, um, particularly now having worked with Google, with worked in the AI space for um, uh, a while, um, what are, what is your sense of the potential ethical issues with AI? I do think it has a lot to do with just centralization of control, you know, so the idea, so it's great that there's a you know, really concrete example is stable diffusion versus mid journey and Dolly. Um, you, it's an open source model. You can run it. And if you want to remove the content filter, you just flag it out with a comment. 
you know, that can be done. And that means people can make different things with it. And when that happened, it was made it really obvious that the other models were being censored. And, you know, whether or not you think that kind of censorship is good or bad is a different question, but the technical possibility exists with the open source model that you can do that. And, you know, they're changing some of the training data and they're kind of revising the new versions, but that version that existed is out there and people can do whatever they want with it. So there's a sort of, you know, it's old school Silicon Valley libertarian open source thinking of just like put the tools out there and people will figure it out. But I think that's one example of how just a really concrete way that centralization and, you know, people being able to tinker. Well, that sounds changing. like you're arguing for centralization and moderation, maybe. Well, I'm not arguing really one way or the other. It's just an example of how it works, you know? Sure. Cause the, cause now the thing's out there and people can make, you know, images that would have otherwise been filtered and sure. Uh, and yeah, we don't need to get too graphic about what people could do with that, but yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even, um, open AI put up a blog post of, of working with GPT three where they asked, or uh, excuse me, GPT four, they asked GPT three, how to break into someone's house. And it gave them this kind of very standard GPT three prosaic answer of like, well, you should really think about whether you want to do that or not. But, you know, uh, some people are, you know, it's like people differ in their opinions about whether you should break into someone's house or not. But, uh, you know, you could probably look up a book on Amazon about uh, uh, safe cracking or something like that. Uh, and then they asked GPT-4 and it gave them this like 10 point thing of like, well, okay, make sure there's no dogs. Make sure you cut the power so that the all of these security systems are disabled. Buy this glass cutter off of Amazon and very quietly like, <laughs> like, <Wow. laughs> like cut through a window and it just went down the list and it was like, okay, well that's a very like uh on the nose example. But you know, it, it's this. It's see. The thing is, though, it's like it's the same as any, not any other. But it, the ethical questions are on the same spectrum as the ethical questions with information technology. Period. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. it's mm-hmm. a tool that you're giving everyone, and the old school Silicon Valley libertarian ethos. It's like, look, like you know, I got on the internet when it was CompuServe in 1987. So, like, I'm very much of that mindset. But at the same time, it's like you know, look, I've also been on you know, tour in 2022. And I know mm-hmm. that one of the things, you know, people, the John Perry Barlow's of the world wanted the internet to bring us together and to be this big, grateful dead love in. But, um, guess what? It actually did that. And, um, not everybody is the type of person, you, you know, when, once you're mm-hmm. one consciousness with everyone, you get to figure out that people are a lot more fucked up than you thought they were, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and now we have to deal with that. But I, th- I think that that's, a positive step and it's like well if you, you wanted your you wanted your global buddhist consciousness here you go right, <laughs> right. Like, here you go now you got to deal with like mike cernovich on twitter uh talking about guerrilla mm-hmm. mindset and uh you know QAnon mm-hmm. and, and the deep web and like all this insanity but that that's an obvious was obviously going to happen but we i think we are all as a culture dwelling in these really profound ambiguities of what the hell to do um, I'm curious what, how you see that working from be, behind the scenes, if people have clear thinking on that or what the general thrust is. Well, I would say the thing that's most promising to me is seeing that people are actually <laughs> experiencing what we've been talking about, which is AI forcing them to understand their own uh, thinking better. You know, So in order to un- unpack the ethics questions, you have to look at the context that you're in and the assumptions 
uh, intuitions and biases that you bring to any conversation. And it's, you know, it can get endlessly philosophical, but the basic act of turning the mirror on yourself and saying, okay, this thing is going to amplify whatever I put into it. The fact that people are having those conversations in various ways, not everybody and not all the time, but certainly the fact that that's happening is a, is a good sign in the longer term, right? Like the experience that we've been talking about is one that people are having where they have to kind of address these things. And, you know, I think there are questions about where and at what point it matters. So for example, should you remove data from a training set? Does it make it possible if the model doesn't know that there are things that are evil in the world, if you, you know, keep it from seeing all the bad stuff, will it be smart? This, I mean, this sounds like, again, like people having kids, right? It's like, it's like the same yeah. question. Yeah. So what, what are people thinking about that? Well, I think one conversation that, you know, I've seen is, well, of course it needs to know about everything, uh, in order for it to learn, but then there has to be some choice about what it can and can't talk about or what it should and shouldn't say, you know, should it tell you how to break into someone's house? Like probably not. So even that um, has a lot of assumptions, assumptions in it. I feel like that is a very, that's a very 2022 ethical outlook. It's like, yeah, like everyone should see everything on the internet, but we should all be very careful about what we say on Twitter. Right. You know, which is basically how everyone thinks. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go look at all the most fucked up shit. But online, I'm just going to talk in a way that won't upset the HR department of the company I work for. Um, mm-hmm. And that 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 is a for I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that is an that is a very strange and specific that itself is a very strange and specific ethical framework and compromise that people have made with their reality right now here this mm-hmm. year that probably doesn't have a whole lot of parallels in the rest of human history if ever yeah right yeah. outside Completely. of maybe i don't know if you lived in soviet russia right and you just like every yeah like nobody likes the government but nobody talks about it that in itself that's not a state of consciousness anyone wants to be in that because that implies deception it implies self-deception and that's like psychologically deadly so do you want to teach an ai to be as fucked up as we are i don't know (laughs) well if the point if the point of it is to represent the knowledge that we have in this data right that's i guess like that's kind of where you get into this hyper rational mindset which is like well there's the data and then there's the model and we need to make a model of the data because then that will represent reality but it's not thinking about it in terms of what causative effects do we want it to have on reality or it's thinking about it as though like all data is equal in some sense right but right yeah i mean like if you i mean if you train an ai look if you train an ai on the entire open internet it's just going to give you like dog memes and Pornhub, right it's like like that 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 is it's not going to give you worthwhile data Mm -hmm. and i think that um I mean, just right that just there is something that's important to. to I think part of it is like about. a volume thing, right? Like you yeah. need a certain amount of data to to pull things out of language, and so the idea of including Reddit in it, which you can really tell in GPT three that there's Reddit in there. Oh no! Well, that <laughs> I mean, itself is interesting, right? Because it's like Reddit itself is is a bit of a neural net in the sense that there is this Reddit. I call I, I refer to Reddit as man baby um, um, man baby hive. 
because there is this Reddit overmind egregore that has emerged out of out of Reddit, which is this this guy with a fedora and a Funko Pop, like like whining at you about not reading the studies or something like that. And uh, but but like Reddit is deeply unpleasant. Like no nobody wants to hang out with the Red, the Reddit guy, and yet. You know, it's like Reddit is actually more useful than Google now, to be honest, you know, because there's no clickbait on it. Um, well, it's an interesting yeah. question. Like, how would you construct a training set that would have enough data to get what it needs about language in general and then be kind of curated around specific things? I guess you can train models on uh, on specific data sets and, you know, build a wisdom model, you know, build a engineering model, uh, build things like that that are reinforcing specific patterns. Um, but you know, the thing that I think is most interesting right now, I mean, there's really, when it comes down to it, when you're talking about, uh, this idea of self-reflection and unearthing the ethics of the environment in which an AI is made, you're always talking about a corporation that has a profit motive. I mean, that's at the end of the day, you're going to get to that. And then that's going to spiral into policy, into the relationship with society as a whole and how everything is structured. And so there's some really complex questions there. But I think what's most interesting and exciting to me about the situation with AI right now is that so much of what it's known for and being used for is just making art. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's so cool that it's actually just really good. And, you know, I've thought about it in terms of with language, we have categories of, you know, language that's true and language that's false and language that's false is fiction or art, you know? Uh, so the idea that it's actually maybe more suited for that than other things is kind of what I'm on about right now. Like the idea that maybe it's just better as an art medium than it is as an information medium, because it's unreliable. Like the fact that mid journey, Dolly stable diffusion, AI text to image generation is happening at the same time that chat GPT is out here and people are posting these absurd answers to chat GPT questions. It's like, don't go to it necessarily for factual information, go to it to make something that you haven't seen before. That's what it's actually potentially useful for. Definitely. I I would agree with that. And I would add the observational caveat that I think the thing with um, the AI interacting with AI on an artistic basis basis is obviously the surface with which the public is interacting mm-hmm. with it because that's what they understand. But the real payload with AI is obviously the quantitative stuff happening behind the scenes with the financial markets, with financial quants, with corporate optimization, with espionage, mm-hmm. with y- you name it, right? With um, making behavioral models of the public. Yeah, ad service. Mm-hmm. Ads as well, uh, but also from a political uh, angle. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I think that the the things that we're going to see come out of AI in that regard are going to make Cam- uh, Cambridge Analytica look very quaint, right? So, um, mm-hmm. there, but, but I think, but both of those come down to, for me, you know, the fundamental question is obviously the model, but it's also just the training data. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that it, it, I think what you said about it, giving it limited sets of training data that, that at least practically seems very um, kind of like the core of the core of the question. And so I think that practically uh, people should learn how AI works just so they understand what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you said about, uh, kind of manipulation and 
stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's interesting to just kind of imagine an escalation of these things. You know, it's, if the thing is everything's interconnected too. So the more of these uh, forces that are predicting and I mean, you get into a very hyperstitional construct where everyone's kind of predicting and trying to manipulate at the same time. And so I wonder how those, right. you know, what, which is what they're of, doing anyways. It's just kind of an exaggeration mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. One thing, you know, I think just to go to something more prosaic is just the idea of ad serving and, uh, you know, vibe capitalism, the idea that you're kind of getting picked up by these different wavelengths that associate you with a certain thing and you're experiencing it through imagery and advertising and, you know, attempts to manipulate your behavior, but it's really nonlinear. I think there's definitely a change in people's experience that you could describe as a shift in their consciousness with regards to that. What is your, um, sense of where that technology is at currently? Cause like you always see like people on Instagram saying like, you know, posting a meme, it's like, all right, got my gun. Cause you know, Instagram showed me an ad for something I dreamed about that type of thing. I mean, it happens to me all the time. Yeah. I was trying to manipulate it and just talking about different things to see if it would, uh, respond and show me pictures of stuff. It was almost I was kind of trying to use it as an image generator in a way, just talk about, you know, I need a blanket for my horse over and over in front of the phone. And then it starts showing me pictures of blankets with horses. You were on saying, them. show me a blanket, give me a blanket for my horse. Yeah. I was saying I need a blanket for my horse over and over. And then it started <laughs> making these like blanket horse ads. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit like, uh, yeah, using, Dolly or something. Like it was gen. It was gen. Was it actually showing you actual products? Well, they were they're real ads. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at this point, they're real ads. They aren't able to just generate it and then sell me the thing yet. But you know, um, I mean, there's definitely something when your intuition is responding and you're trying to figure out how to navigate reality by manipulating the systems around you by sending them false signals and stuff. This is why camouflage, I think, is really yeah. important. You know, or like you know the the A4 revolution or the idea of like symbols that are opaque that can't be parsed, you know, necessarily. You mean like those masks that people wear so that they can't be detected by uh, cameras? Yeah. Or like, you know, symbols like the black square or the white sheet of paper in China are things that are kind of like hard to parse actually because their meaning is highly contextual or Mm -hmm. can't be kind of picked up by the system. Just the idea. I mean, I've, I think we're definitely all, should be or already are becoming more paranoid because of this like proliferation of pattern recognition. I I think that people have a sense of what's an AI and what's not right. Like sometimes there's a certain kind of like stupid quality to AI at times that is really apparent. Yeah. I guess if you're having that experience with non AI intelligences, then it's extremely disturbing also, (laughs) you know, I mean, I, I, I have been, framing it like you're either paranoid or you're an npc oh no <laughs> oh no do you do you but ever it, do you ever suspect that ai has been used to make political decisions in in the last few years god oh, that's a really good question i have no idea i guess let's see could you i guess it depends on what you consider a political decision and where that where that falls but Um, i mean i guess cambridge analytica is the classic example right i mean sure i mean more like like uh consulting it for uh making policy decisions or 
even maybe how a candidate should present themselves. I don't want to give too many examples because I, I don't want to bias your answer, but, but, uh, I really, I just really hope not because I think that the kind of level of stupidity you're talking about is, is still present enough that if you, you know, if they did, I really, if people do things like that, I really hope they use their own judgment in the, the process. The reason that I ask that other than just, you know, obviously, uh, it seems like something that people would do is there's a certain quality to like the last two years it mm. is a little bit like brain damaged in the way that AI sometimes seems where it's like, who, like, you know, like, did somebody just like feed all this data into an AI and tell it, like, ask it, like, what's the best way to just like lock down society? And it gave them this like ridiculous, like, psych- like bizarre answer. And they were like, all right, let's just roll with that. I obviously don't believe that. I'm just saying as an example, right? It, just to Well, you're saying the that. texture, the texture of reality feels like it's getting a little more AI generated. Yes, that's a, yes, and and particularly decisions that are being made by people in power. And obviously the texture of reality has been deeply warped by social media already, but I feel I was that, just going to say I feel that the texture is not as much social media recently cuz social media is just like the endless wailing of you know, the endless butthurt of the, of everyone, but AI has this certain, just like, like, uh, just alien quality to it, not in a cool way, but in a, like, what the hell are you talking about way that it, it, it seems more resonant with the last few well, years. I mean, it's certainly driving social media, you know, the algorithms are definitely have AI as part of them. So I would imagine that there's probably some effects that are surfacing that may not be directly, but probably through social media and the way that it affects people that definitely i mean and and that itself is a feedback loop right because if if ai is manipulating and even the facebook whistleblower whistleblower said that you know people people are now becoming more and more angry because of the the algorithms on social media and their anger is driving more and more extreme political positions and those extreme political positions are now driving the decisions of the politicians who have those people as constituents because they, they need to appeal to them now. Well, that's what I mean about being paranoid or being an NPC. Like you either are kind of analyzing the patterns that are being fed to you and the way that you're reacting to them, or you start to just absorb and reiterate the pattern. How do you mean? Well, like if you are a part of this like feedback loop with extreme narratives around politics and what's going on you can look at the sources of information you can look at the way that they're acting on you that you can look at who's involved and who benefits from it um, and choose which parts to replicate consciously or not and if you're not then you essentially become a programmable surface for these things that are hijacking your limbic system you know like fox news is a kind of like limbic system drug that's hijacked a whole bunch of people to generate these states of anger yeah but, but you know, I would argue that Fox News itself, having observed them for for several decades now, um, and you know the the drift of the points that they make, uh, is all has also been hijacked by just you know extreme nonsense on Twitter, mm-hmm, right? You yeah. can like you can see like I I remember seeing screenshots of the initial QAnon post, which was made on 8chan, and people mm-hmm. saying like, "Oh, this will be hilarious to troll boomers," right? And then that that one idea for whatever reason hijacked like half of the country and then that hijacked you know at first it it starts as an extreme narrative but then it ends up um 
being the thing that everyone wants to hear about. So then it hijacks uh, Fox News. And that was a direct expression of that uh, gap between people that are experienced with a new information technology and people that aren't, right? Because you could see the troll yes. as a troll if you knew what it looked like. But if you didn't, I mean, you could see the AI as an AI if you knew what it looked like. Right. It's like, yeah, like if you're familiar with the internet or if you're somebody who's granola mom, that, that turns out to be a really big gap in terms of information literacy. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to, what are we going to see with AI in the next, let's say one to five years is probably too long to predict out to, but what, what are the big, what are the big milestones you see coming up with AI? I think the generation of media, synthetic media generation is going to continue into motion. It's already is. Um, but the idea of text to image to moving image, you know, other kinds of modes interacting with each other. So image to, to sound, to tech, you know, basically the idea of synthetic media, I think will get really powerful. Um, you know, already there's demos where you can type in, um, sentences and have that animated, you know, so it goes from just the Dolly style single output to moving images and frames. I think that's probably going to happen fairly quickly. Um, there's lots of developments with sound, there's different philosophies about, you know, what works with training models. But one thing that seems pretty common is that the idea that the more data there is, the better of any different kind. So creating like giant models out of everything and just seeing what comes out seems to be an approach people are taking. It's definitely an approach that's leveraged towards big tech, but um, it also seems to work. So that's, you know, if you start out training, for example, if you were to start training an audio model and, you know, using a language model as the foundation, it would work better than if you just started with a blank slate. Okay. Stuff like that. Yeah. So would you say like this year would be a good time frame for like the video version of Dolly? Um, so the stuff I've seen so far has been a little crude but things are moving so fast it's really hard to you know to say that it wouldn't happen necessarily in a year there's already these existing demos you know they're just lo-fi so i guess the question of like what is the appropriate resolution for a public release or something that people would know about you know um it's really a weird thing to think about in terms of media and you know film industry television stuff like that you know right now it's probably not going to I wouldn't imagine that the stuff people can make with it would be super useful in a professional production, but eventually it will be. That's going to be interesting. One, one thing that I've noticed with, with that, even with AI colorization is, you know, you look at these um, colorizations of video from a hundred years ago and suddenly it seems real where it didn't before. So mm -hmm. I realize that also like, AI is not necessarily, um, we think of it as a futuristic thing, but the other thing about it is it will inalterably change our perception of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it, even in the sense, it's like I was looking at um, colorized video of Germany in the 30s. And where, whereas before that seemed like something from a, a history book, now it looks like real, like that's real mm -hmm. now. And that was 
people there doing that. And it's mm-hmm. way scarier, you know, because mm-hmm. now it seems real. And so now I don't see that. My brain no longer compartmentalizes that information in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I feel like AI will also kind of pull up the, uh, pull up our anchors as a species as well. We'll lose contact. We'll, we'll lose, it will bring everything into more focus, but we'll also lose uh, our mooring in, in, in our previous sense of perceiving reality completely, I think. Yeah, totally. I've been thinking a lot of lately about trying to put myself in the headspace of what it was like before photography and what it was like when photography suddenly existed, you know, or really the same could be done for anything like recorded music, broadcast television, anything like that to go from one state to the other. It's a very, uh, it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who hasn't experienced these things. So this is something that we are kind of experiencing now is, you know, a change in media that's unprecedented. Uh, so, you know, to your point about photography and like looking back at the past, we never really have a stable that's like there's not like a specific mediated way of looking at time that's the right one there's all these different ones that have come along and shifted as as we've gone uh as as media has evolved so where can people find out more about your work uh my website is k alado mcdowell it's k a l l a d o m c d o w e l l dot com um, and you can find out about, about my books and the opera and stuff like that. Um, my, the opera is called song of the ambassadors and there's information at song of the ambassadors.com. Got it. And anything else you want to, um, people should keep an eye out for You said you're working on a new book. Yeah. I have a new book out in March in the U S next year. It'll be out in March on Ignota and it's called air age blueprint. And there's a shout out to your book in there. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. It's been really fun. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K. Dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class, and until next time, hang in there. <laughs>